0: I was like, am I, are are you firing me right now? Is that what's happening? They're like, we're deeply encouraging you to go start your own company. Like, this is what we think that you should do. And then that's what I did. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast
1: that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm chatting with Dan Berkowitz, concert goer, music lover, and founder of CID Entertainment. CID, which is a Philly based company, combines music and hospitality. You know how, when you go to buy a festival or concert ticket, you see options that include lodging, travel, and meet and greet packages? That's what CID does. But way before creating CID, Dan didn't even consider working in the music industry. That all changed at a chaotic,
0: messy New Year's Eve concert for the band Fish. Opened up a porta potty and. What I saw, nobody should ever have to see in any situation, let alone one that they're paying for to have a nice time. I just started thinking that there must be a better way.
1: Today, CID operates VIP experiences on some of the country's biggest tours and festivals, and Dan has worked with Luke Bryan, The Grateful Dead, Dave Matthews, Grace Potter, Josh Groban, Odessa, and way more. Stay tuned for Dan's story now on Philly Who. Just a heads up, there is cursing in this episode.
0: My mother took me to see Yitzchak Perlman, you know, very well-known Jewish violinist, at the Mann Music Center. And I was very young. I'd like to say I was five or six. I remember it so well. I remember where we were. I actually stand there sometimes when I met the man, and I remember it and i remember he has polio you know something that everybody knows about him i mean i think they know first that he's an incredible accomplished musician but you know he certainly you know he grew up at the age where people still had polio and he walks with canes and i remember him leaving the stage and i remember him coming back onto the stage for the encore and i asked my mom why does he do that and she said oh, it's part of the show and it just blew my mind and i remember that so vividly
1: From a pretty young age, Dan Berkowitz was influenced by the magic of live music. And by the 90s, he was a lot like thousands of other American teenagers, obsessed with the Beastie Boys and Nirvana.
0: You know, you've got to fight for your right to party. And like as a fifth grader, I don't really understand what that means. They talk about the angst of growing up in a house and, you know, how the conflict between them and their parents about their trying to party. I definitely connected with that. Not let anything about my childhood was anything but pleasant. Um, it, there wasn't that much angst between me and my parents. I wasn't dying to party. Um, I was living a pretty normal Cherry Hill life. Yeah. I think I'm in sixth grade, and there's these guys in a basement in you know in the Pacific Northwest that put out this album, and then months later, you know I'm deeply affected by it, wow. and I distinctly remember I was you know working at at Woodcrest Country Club in Cherry Hill but then when i would listen to rage against the machine and fuck you i won't do what you tell me that resonated with me yeah. you know like I, I would have to pretend for 5 or 6 hours that i'll do anything that they'll tell me yeah. you know here's your 7 iron <laughs> sir yes i'll i'll clean your shoes yeah. no problem <laughs> um and then that definitely resonated with me so i'm sure You know, that probably wasn't their intention that, you know, a caddy from the Woodcrest Country Club would really find relief in those lyrics. But I did. (laughs) I'm sure they wouldn't be mad, though. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think it was the sound. I think it was, you know, some some lyrics as well. But yeah. You know, so then over the years through high school, how did your musical taste change? Drastically. I saw Fish for the first time in 1995 at the Mann Music Center. I liked it. Like, I thought it was cool. I, I had a good time. But then I saw them again in 1997 at the Spectrum, and then I knew my life was different after that.
1: What about that show changed your life?
0: So I think about it. I think about it a lot. I think it was the sense of community, and it was just a really special night. And there was like 20 of us, and we had a really, really great time. We like hung out in the parking lot before the show. Yeah. We all went in together. I remember where we sat. I missed the Spectrum dearly. Yeah. It's like, I think, a, one of my great losses. Yeah.
1: So we're now towards the end of high school. You already know that you love music. You love going to shows. You love the community aspect of concerts. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking about this as a career?
0: Not at all. So I never did well in school. You know, I got by. I didn't have great career aspirations when I was in high school. I thought that I would go to law school. And I went to Rutgers, majored in political science, you know, heading towards going to law school. So I think that was really the only career that I thought of.
1: Long story short, law school never happened. Dan planned and studied and even took the LSATs. But sometimes
0: one day can change your entire path in life. June 27th, 2001, I was at a friend's house in Cherry Hill. His next door neighbor, her name at the time was Lisa Klein, now it's Lisa Lesser, but his next door neighbor was having a party at her house. And she was known as someone that would have wild parties at her house. She was a couple of years younger than us, but she would have wild parties. So we noticed all this commotion, like a lot of people. So we went over there. We like grabbed some beers from my buddy's fridge and we went over there. Turns out the disco biscuits were about to play in her basement. What? Yeah. What? Um, so and I had never seen them. And my roommates from college like loved them. How famous are they at this point? They were playing the electric factory like they were doing so well. Enough that it's a
1: big deal that it's has got deal.
0: this in her basement. There was something happening where they were supposed to play some sort of like promotional gig and then that got canceled so they happened to be in the area with all their stuff and she was friendly with somebody in the crew and she's like hey i'll throw you a couple grand if you want to come to my house (laughs) where i'm having a party like she was already having a party and then it just worked out holy shit and then again i distinctly remember this moment that like within the first 30 seconds of the first song i was like oh this is it this is for me this is my shit and what what is for you so it was you know, and I loved The Dead, and I loved Fish, and I, you know, I still do, like, deeply. But at that point in my life, the Disco Biscuits were, they were playing harder. It was a little more aggressive. Yeah. It just really resonated with me. Yeah. Aaron Magner, who's the keyboard player of the Disco Biscuits, he, you know, him and I are dear friends. He said something the other day that really resonated with me. He's, when they play, when, when you play with somebody else on stage, you're communicating with them in a nonverbal way. And sometimes it's terrible. Like there's a lot of times where it just doesn't work and that's for any you know any band yeah. that improvises on stage. And I like that, like I like that chance. I like the fact that like it's not always gonna be great, yeah. but when it is, like that's when it's really worth it. I
1: guess that's why, because when they somehow create something amazing, they just did that
0: out of their pocket. For the next 18 months, I probably saw them 80 times.
1: I believe that, that's crazy.
0: And I guess, you know, chronologically, this all this all leads to that. But through a couple lucky bounces, I became their tour manager. So, yeah, I want to dive into those bounces. I ended up through a couple, you know, different social situations became pretty close with them, specifically with Aaron, the keyboard player. If you're around them 80 times in 18 months, it's a good chance. Right. And a lot of those places were smaller places. You know, I'm a larger person. So I think that I was kind of noticeable. Um, (laughs) I became friendly with their crew. And then I lived here, I lived in Philadelphia. So a lot of times they would go play shows, they would go play, you know, wherever they were playing. They'd be in Virginia, they'd be in Pittsburgh, they'd be in Albany, they'd be wherever. And they would need something from Philly, so they would call me to help. you know, I would literally meet some dude underneath the Ben Franklin Bridge and he would hand me boxes of merchandise. And then I would just bring them to wherever they were. And then somebody would come get the boxes and they would bring them to the merchandise table. That's how I started helping. I mean, it was very organic, and I was just willing to help. I was down. I had a car. You were just like, you just loved them so much that you wanted to help them. It is safe to say I had no ambition. Yeah? Yeah. Wow. None. I had just gone through something. So one of my best friends who I saw a bunch of fish with tragically died in uh, early 1999. So that was a deeply impactful moment for me. And uh, me and a bunch of my friends, we kind of lost our way after that. Yeah. And I feel like finding the Disco Biscuits and finding the community that surrounded them was like a big, that was was like a really big thing for me. First, I was just some dude dropping off some wet cardboard boxes of merchandise. Then I would maybe help hand out some flyers. Then they brought me to Amsterdam for like a a week-long run that they had there to like help with certain logistics. This is before, at least before folks like us could get European cell phones. And then... The drummer told us that he was leaving the band. The drummer told us that you know, in 2003 that he was going to leave the band and he was going to go to, he was going to go to medical school, Sammy, who's now you know a successful doctor. But at that time, I think there was really a crossroads with the band. They weren't sure what they were going to do. And then I called a meeting, which I had no rights to do, but I called a meeting and I met with the band. and I said, "Let me help you. Like let me help you get from where you're at now to where you should go, which is finding a new drummer.
1: Can you walk me into that meeting?
0: Yeah, so it was at a restaurant in Fairmont, and it was myself, the guitar player John, and the bass player Mark, and I presented them with an idea that I could be their tour manager slash head of day-to-day logistics, and I would work every single day on making sure that they had what they needed to go through the drummer search process, and the fact that they didn't laugh me out of the lunch and they took me seriously was a huge moment for me, and then miraculously that day, they said, OK, let's go for it. How did you feel when they said that? I felt ready. I felt like we can do this. Um, they said, can you start tomorrow at 10 o'clock in the morning? And I said, how about 1130? No, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> not a tough. good start. So um, yeah, I mean, and I always, you know, I think about this and like every meeting I have now or anything that we do, there's no situation in which I am less prepared for than I was that meeting. There was no reason why they should have said yes. And I was at a crossroads, too. It was either go to law school or, you know, do this job. I had taken the LSAT. I was ready to go. Wow. And then they said yes. And then that's what really started my career in the music business. So
1: why did you feel so strongly to give up on law school Mm -hmm. to make this
0: band live on? Yeah, I just felt like they weren't done. Like what they were doing was so important. And you can tell that what they're doing is important. There's nothing more engaging to me than that. You're connecting with people on a human level in a way that most people don't get to do ever. That's important. There's something there. Yeah, and I did that for two, maybe three years. And while I was doing that, I started doing packages for their fans. Every year we would play multiple nights at the Starland Ballroom in uh, Sayreville, New Jersey. The venue had a problem that the fans would either leave their cars overnight, which would be the responsible ones, or that they would drive out of there in less than perfect condition to drive. So they asked me, can you come up with a solution? We're thinking maybe shuttles. So I ran shuttles to the Starland Ballroom and that was the first thing I'd ever done that was outside of tour managing the band or helping the band directly. I love fish. I love them, you know, deeply. So much so that You know, a bunch of friends and I decided to go to Big Cypress, which was their New Year's Eve event going into the millennium, 1999 into 2000. 80,000 people show up to the Seminole Indian Reservation in, you know, the middle of nowhere, Florida. Um, You know, we had driven 24 hours to get there. And it was a really, really special time. I mean, there was, you know, obviously something in the air going into 2000. It was a very big celebratory moment for a lot of people. Sadly, this was just, you know, 11 months after my, you know, one of my best friends had passed away. So this is a really critical time in a lot of our lives. So, you know, we go down there. Everything's great. Having a really good time. Weather's perfect. It's South Florida in in December. Bands on fire. They played from about 1130 until six, seven o'clock in the morning. And that was the thing. That was like the gag that they were going to play all night. But I distinctly remember this one moment and this is, you know, meant no disrespect to the people that put so much hard work into producing that festival. However, I do distinctly remember this one moment in which I opened up a porta potty and what I saw, nobody should ever have to see. No human being in any situation, let alone one that they're paying for to have a nice time, should ever have to see what I saw. And I just started thinking there must be a better way. There must be, you know, this can't be a sustainable way to have 80,000 people come to some place to have a nice time. But I certainly didn't think, you know, I'm going to fix that problem. It's not at all. I just very, very distinctly remember. And unfortunately, when I think about it, I actually see the image. So yeah, I'll spare I'll spare everybody. Um, <laughs> sorry to
1: dredge that back no, up. No, <laughs> no, it's
0: okay. And again, you know, the thing about fish festivals is they were figuring out how to do it before anybody else was doing yeah. it. Yeah. So I guess in 1999, the first Coachella had just happened. Fish had been throwing these festivals since 1996. Yeah, before there was a Coachella, before there was a Bonnaroo. The fact that there was, you know, let's say, give them the benefit of the doubt and say that there was one unclean porta potty. Yeah, I don't think that was a, you know, that was a problem at all.
1: Well, that's when the seed was planted, and I think not everybody would, I guess, let that seed grow into an idea that, into the idea that they can affect the change, right? Because I think some are
0: just like, well, that's just how festivals are, you know, right. <laughs> you're just right. like, don't go in the porta-potties, good right. luck, everybody, you know? You know, you'd come home, and at that point, you know, you'd come home one night, and there was sometimes, you know, I had, I, I shared an apartment with somebody, and you're in different cities every single night, and especially when you're touring with a band like the Disco Biscuits, you can be in Birmingham on a Tuesday and it can be, you know, a Tuesday to you. But to the people that live in Birmingham that are big Disco Biscuits fans, that's one of the biggest party nights of the year for them. I definitely got caught up a little bit in the party atmosphere. And as the tour manager, that's not really, you know, the ideal scenario. My employment with the Disco Biscuits unwound in a very mutual way. I think that depending on whose version of the story you're telling, I either got fired or I quit very dramatically. And then the next time at the Electric Factory, I'm a runner. I'm a person who um, my job was doing whatever the band wanted to that day, basically using my car to run errands for them. It's it's an entry-level position in the music industry, but something that I think a lot of people who are eventually successful have done something like that. I remember, too, my first gig, my first gig being a runner... The band was Flogging Molly, the first show I ever worked at The Electric Factory. I had a good relationship with our bus driver. However, he would give me a lot of shit for my lack of uh, tour managing skills, which, you know. Is, Ironic. Yeah, you know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I was ill-prepared for the job of tour managing, yeah. um, and I had a lot of passion, and I loved what I did. But, you know, the bus driver would be the one person who could probably notice most my lack of logistical prowess at that at that time. Seen some tours. And again, like I said, I got caught up in the party atmosphere, and that would definitely affect the communication I had with the bus driver. Mm. Um, but we had a good relationship. Like he, it was almost endearing to him how bad I was at my job. <laughs> and the first show, Flogging Molly, tour manager goes, yeah, can you go pick up our bus driver? He's by the bus. He wants to go back to his hotel. And... I'm waiting by the bus and then in comes Brock, who was our bus driver, who I had seen five days earlier as the Disco Biscuits tour manager. And he gets in my car and he looks at me, he goes, I told you it wasn't no tour manager, Dan. Now let's go. We, we're spending the whole day together. We're going to Best Buy. We're going wherever I want. And then literally he had me going all over the place. But, you know, that was it. That was, you know, I I, I was a runner at the Electric Factory and I, I loved it. Like, I loved it. I loved, I learned so much about other bands and how they toured.
1: While working at the Electric Factory and Live Nation, Dan became fixated on these things known in the music industry as travel packages. How to give concert goers a comprehensive experience with transportation and hotel rooms. Now, this kind of work wasn't completely new to him. But as a 20-something-year-old manager of the Disco Biscuits,
0: I made a lot of mistakes, like a lot of mistakes, not really explaining to the hotel the type of group that was coming their way. You know, because a fan base going to a concert behaves a lot differently than a normal you know, run of house group that's in a hotel. The
1: same people that that are, you know, they're there for a Biscuits concert versus there for like a, a work conference are going to behave differently.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, I always call that conflict the still up versus just up. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> You up, early or up late? Yeah. 7 o'clock at the breakfast buffet gets pretty weird, <laughs> but like, you know, just for the hotel, just for their maintenance and their, you know, everything, their front desk staff, everything yeah. that they do to have a group of people, 200 people that are moving in one way, they're leaving together at 7 PM. They're coming back together at 1 AM, no matter what show it is. Yeah. Um, you know, so I learned a lot, you know, and even at the beginning, like people were checking into hotels and they'd buy packages from us, but then the hotel would charge them for the tax on the room. And I didn't know things like that. I didn't know that like, obviously, you pay for the room and tax. And then people, when they get there, they don't have to pay for anything. I didn't know that. Wow. Everything that we did was designed to make it easier for people to see their favorite concert. Yeah. You know, and all of that, like everything that I ever did, the reason why I did it is I wanted people to experience what I got to experience seeing my favorite bands. How did you get to the point that
1: you decided to start your company?
0: So I, I'm working at the Electric Factory within a year. I end up at the um, the Live Nation office. I believe at that time it was still called Clear Channel. This was right at the time where Live Nation was forming, or Clear Channel had bought up a bunch of local promoters, Electric Factory concerts being one of them. So we did MIA at the Electric Factory, which was amazing. We did The Roots at the Electric Factory. We did the Beastie Boys at Festival Pier, which was like, you know, one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of. Yeah. And they let me do those things. And this was through Electric Factory concerts and they were all very successful. Um, And they were supported by the um, You Wish You Knew, which was the the Philadelphia Visitors Bureau. It was a very like Philly-centric, like come to Philly, have a good time. But one day I was talking to them about how this is my passion. Like I want to do these packages. I want to, you know, while I'm building this, Jeff, I'll be your assistant. And I'll build these packages and I'll start this little division here where we can do these enhanced experiences and help people see the the music that they love and bring them closer and make it easier. And we were talking about it. We're like walking around the office and then we walked into the parking lot and they were like, so this is why, you know, we're really, really, we really think that you should do this. But it's not going to be here. Like, we're not going to do it here. And I was like, am I, are, are you firing me right now? Is that what's happening? They're like, we're. We're deeply encouraging you to go start your own company. Like, this is what we think that you should do. And then that's what I did. I mean, the next day, in a very George Costanza-like move, I showed back up at the Disco Biscuit studio, went into my old office, and then... You know, they come in for rehearsal that day and they're like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm starting my own company. They're like, okay. And then, <laughs> so you show up at your old office just as if nothing's happened. As if nothing had happened at all. Um, and they didn't charge me rent for six months, and which was amazing. And then I think when they eventually started charging me rent, it was like $100 a month. And they were my first client because I knew how to put a package up on their website. When you're in the parking lot and they
1: either... Downright say or strongly suggest you should go do this. You should yeah. go build this. Yeah. Had you considered that at all before?
0: No. I, I never really thought that that was a possibility. I mean, there was no such thing as like startup culture. Yeah. There was no such thing as like there There really wasn't a playbook, you know, in that moment when I started thinking about it, it all it all clicked, no, like, it yeah. all made sense. This This is what I should be doing. Yeah. And I always wanted to do this. I always wanted to create these packages for people that made it easier for them to see shows. I knew that there was a need. You know, there would be sold out shows at the Electric Factory. That would be unbelievable shows. That would be these fan- like these ridiculously amazing nights. But if a sold out at a sold out Electric Factory, it's kind of a tough experience for a yeah. lot of people. Um, you know, if you get there a little late, you know, you're not going to have a good place to see the band. Yeah. Um, and even if you get there early, it's going to be a little crowded. Yeah.
1: So you start this company, you get your first partners. Is there a moment early on where you have the realization that? The company is here to stay, that this is what you're doing and that this is going to be a viable business that'll last for
0: a while. There is a moment. So, well, there's a moment in which I feel like there's a chance that it's going to get a little bigger than me working with a couple buddies and their bands. And, you know, I'm eternally grateful to Vince Iwinski, the manager of Umphreys and Eric Parrott, the manager of Sound Tribe, and Jay Bao, the manager of Government Mule. So yeah, I was at a Death Cab for Cutie concert at the Mann Music Center, and I distinctly remember looking down at my phone, and it was a flip phone, and I distinctly remember seeing that it was Jonathan Levine calling me. And at the time he was, I don't know if he was still the Disco Biscuits agent, but he was definitely Government Mule's agent. And he is, you know, I can't even put into words how influential he's been to my career and to my life, and he's just a really special guy. I was inside the amphitheater when he called, I like it was a flip phone. I picked it up. I was like, hold on. Yeah, like and then out. I ran out like I run out to the lawn at the Man Music Center and I run out to the lawn and like kind of make a right. And I was like, what do you got? And he was like, Phil Lesh is going to be doing 14 nights at the Nokia Theater. It was called the Nokia then. I believe now it's called the PlayStation Theater in New York. Um, Phil Lesh is going to be doing 14 nights at the Nokia Theater. And, you know, he was talking about doing some sort of travel package, like making it so if people wanted to come to multiple nights, we'll make it easier for them. He's like, and that's where we're at right now. You know, can you put a proposal together? He's like, I trust you that you'll be able to pull this off. And, you know, I put my neck out on the line for you here. And he said it more eloquently than that. Yeah, Yeah, Um. But I remember that. I distinctly remember, I like remember what it looked like on my phone, seeing that he was calling at that hour. It felt... Different, like it wouldn't be a normal time. It was like eight p.m. on a Friday night. You just know when you you get those calls, right? It just felt like that. I stayed for two or three more songs, thinking like, okay, I can watch the rest of the show. Like, I'm really into the show. I'm going to watch the rest of the show, and I just couldn't. Like, my head was just going. Like my my mind was just like, what are the packages going to be called? What are they going to include? Where are we going to put the people? And then I left. I left the show early. I told the people that I was with, I got to go, and then. Got him the proposal, I believe, on Monday. This was a Friday and then on a Monday. And then all of a sudden, we were working with Phil Lesh, founding bass player of the Grateful Dead. Yeah. That was actually the first VIP ticket that we'd ever sold. You know, and, and I, I hate the word VIP. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Why? It stands for very important person. And just because somebody buys something, it doesn't make them more important at all. So we like to use enhanced experience a lot. We did it. 14 nights, Noki Theater. We had, you know, three different levels of packages. One was called Friend of the Devil, which put you on stage. You were standing on stage. And, you know, I didn't know really what we were doing. And Robbie Taylor, who's, you know, Phil's production manager, who still hates me to this day, um, or he, you know, maybe he pretends that he does. So if he's listening, which I know he's not, <laughs> you know, I'm always here for you. Um, all of a sudden I sold these seats on stage. He's the stage manager. I didn't tell him Oh no! (laughs) and he's the production manager, which obviously I know now is a necessary step. And you know, he was like, you're doing what now? Like on the first day of the run, I was like, yeah, they're going to, I don't know. They'll just like stand right there. It'll be fine. He was like, all right. We're going to build you a little riser so they can see, and then I'm going to put a wedge here so that they can hear. Because otherwise, you know, this whole band's, they're they're in in-ears, which means that, like, they've yeah. got in-ear speakers in their, you know, they're like, earbuds. So they can hear themselves. Right. So they can hear the sound on stage. There's no real set stage sound. He's like, so I'll give you a wedge so there's stage sound, because otherwise your people are going to be really upset. I was right. like, oh, cool. Thank you. And that was the last word he ever spoke to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... So we did that. And I remember this, you know, because it was such a seminal moment for us as an organization. You know, I went to all 14 nights and I remember how fancy I thought it was that we could take a cab home. Like we were taking a cab home (laughs) because we were doing, you know, it would be late nights sometime, you know, we'd get out of there like one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. And I very distinctly remember like how, you know, we thought we made it. Like it was big time because we were taking a cab, (laughs) you know, it, it definitely, um, that was a moment. And then, you know, again, here comes Jonathan Levine back into it. He was the agent for the Disco Biscuits when I was their tour manager. One of the most sufficient moments I've ever had, the moment I've felt most sufficient professionally was one night him and I were coming home. We'd seen a show together and this was long after I was tour manager. And like, I don't know, we were like in this whether it was an SUV or whether it was it was some sort of big vehicle. We were with a bunch of people and, you know, it was loose. Everyone was feeling loose that night. And I apologize. I'm like, dude, I must have been the worst tour manager you've ever dealt with. Like, and you were the agent. We worked on so much stuff together. And he was like, what are you talking about, man? Like, you were so passionate. Like, you cared so much. Like, I'll take, you know, a little disorganized and passionate, you know, right. many, many times in a row. You know, the fact that he could tell how deeply I cared was something that really meant a lot to yeah. me. But, you know, I digress. So, you know, again, so Phil Lesh, 14 nights. So after the 14th night, which I guess they were waiting to see if I screwed it up, mm-hmm. I guess worse than not telling Robbie that we had seats on stage. <laughs> after the 14 nights, we're done. And, you know, I like, can remember what it looked like and sounded like and even smelled like because it was a unique, was a unique smell down there. And Jonathan pulls me into this room And he's like, all right, now are you ready? And I was like, what do you got? And he's like, the dead are going back out on tour next year from 2009. And you've got some major competition that want to do VIP tickets. But I've told them that we've got to give you a good look. And it was going to be Phil and Bobby and Mickey and Billy. And Warren Haynes was the guitar player. And they were going to do arenas. And at this time, we'd never done arenas. We'd never done anything in an arena. Um, And we'd actually never done a proper tour. So miraculously, we got the gig. It was tough getting that gig. What did you have to do? We had to model it out. You know, it was obviously The Dead are a a very professional organization, and there's a lot of folks looking at every single decision that they were making. So, you know, we, we had never really dealt with those sort of numbers. You know, we'd never dealt with 24 arena shows with, you know, 500 tickets a night. We had to convince the band that we knew what we were doing, even though we kind of didn't know what we were doing. And they felt that we could pull it off. You know, there were a lot of great people that worked for them that we still work with to this day that had faith in us that thought that we could pull it off. And that happened. And that was in 2009, torn out in May. And, you know, we did 24 shows with the dead that year.
1: So 10, 15 years earlier, you're a kid in high school, middle school, huge Grateful Dead fan. Yes. Did you have a moment where you re, where you looked back on that and thought you're running VIP for their
0: tour? Yes, all the time. I mean, all the time I still think about that. Like I still think about how high school me would be so happy with me right now. <laughs> um, and sometimes when it gets hard or sometimes when I think about, you know, it's not worth the stress or sometimes when I think about how lucky I am to be doing what I'm doing. Um, and it's very helpful. I distinctly remember this moment where I realized that there was a music business. My friend and I, we were at a show in Albany. They play. We are, you know, the we're like two guys in the arena that just sat back in our seats after the show was over, basically just like, whoa. <laughs> um, I remember seeing people breaking down the stage. And to me, you know, I'm this sophomore in college I have no idea how this works it's magic you show up the lights go down the band comes on stage it's like all these cool lights the band sounds awesome and it's like magic I know I never thought about it I never gave it that sort of critical thought what's going on behind the scenes and then I remember seeing people breaking down the stage being like oh there's like stuff that goes on to support all of this magic like there's maybe there's something there maybe there's something that like maybe I could help so first off how did the company get its name? Ugh. So what does that mean? What does that sound? Well, I mean, I I named the company Consider it Dan in two thousand and seven. And a lot of the guys in the biscuits crew, like when I would like help them out with something or hook them up with something, or, you know, maybe I would show up with um some breakfast sandwiches to load in, or I would get them a nicer hotel than they thought they were gonna get, or I would, you know, book them on the flight that they wanted to. The the lighting guy, he would, you know, and he's from Alabama, so I'll I'll do his Drawl terribly but he would be like oh man consider it dan <laughs> and like you know he would say that and like i you know other people would say that and that was like a thing yeah and like so when i first started putting travel packages up on the disco biscuits website i just called it that i yeah. called them considerate dan travel packages yeah. and then quickly and you know not not inconsequential to the story is I would just put up this little hyperlink on the website, which, you know, was just text. And then the keyboard player is like, dude, you need a logo, man. Yeah. Like we can't just put text up. And he put me in touch with somebody who design work for them, who's now my wife and, um, you know, mother of my two children. Wow. So, you know, that all happened at the same time. Um, so she made the logo and she made it in like 10 seconds, not 10 seconds, maybe like five minutes. Yeah. And what she made is like exactly what I wanted. Wow. So yeah, that, the company was called that um, until 2009, and then we changed our name to CID Making to try to sound company. a little bit more professional. Yeah. And also, you know, for anybody out there, I strongly encourage you to not name your company after yourself, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, because great. then you will not have an identity outside of that right. profession. Right. At
1: what moment did the company go from being, Dan is the guy that does this stuff, to
0: this is a team that does this stuff? So, good question. You know, 2009, Fish brings us out to Fish Festival Eight. We did hundreds of people in travel packages, and we had an amazing team that was there. And then at the end of that, they're like, "Hey, can you guys come do this at Coachella?" We we're like, "Yes, yes, def- please, <laughs> definitely." And that was, you know, there were 2,500 people riding our shuttles, and now at Coachella, we're doing 35 000 to 40,000 people wow. a day on shuttles. Those nights. You know, they were insane. You know, at the end of the night when Fish got out, it was like, you know, it was like Braveheart in that field. Like we (laughs) were just like running around. There were buses everywhere. We had no idea what we were doing, but we made it happen. Wow. Yeah, it all happened. Wow. So, you know, things are moving along. We, you know, miraculously start working with Coachella. We start working with Bonnaroo. We start working with Lollapalooza and ACL. And then one day I get a call. I get a call from uh, my dear friend, Hank Sachs, who's Grace Potter's agent. He's like, hey. Uh, Louis Messina is going to call you you know we've been talking about Grace going out on tour with Kenny Chesney and I think I just convinced him to do VIP tickets and I think he's going to call you Um, so we turn that around we turn it around and miraculously get the gig and then all of a sudden now we're working with Kenny Chesney so Kenny as the as the legend goes was listening to Pandora radio one day fell in love with Grace Potter never heard her before, wow. told Louie, find me Grace Potter. Louie calls Hank. Hank's Grace's agent. They do a song together, um, which is still one of Kenny's bigger songs. They do a song together, and then Kenny brings Grace out on her tour, and that's how it all happened. Um, and then all of a sudden, we're working not only in country music, but with one of the bigger country music artists. Started working with Eric Church and Luke Bryan pretty shortly after that. What's different about working with you know the country scene versus these bigger festivals and the jam bands? You know, obviously the shows are very different. You know, Luke traditionally has a pretty standard Mm. set that he plays and it's amazing. You know, but like the lights and the video and stage props and whatnot are all pretty coordinated to that show. So it's all very different. You know, it's one set. It's not two sets. Yeah. When he even plays multiple nights, sometimes the sets will be, you know, remarkably similar. Yeah. But the fans are all so passionate and the, the artists themselves, and I could speak to Luke you know, because I've gotten to know him, and I've gotten to know his organization, I've got to know his fans because we've worked with him so much. He cares so much about his fans because he feels like he, or he knows, he relates to them. Like he knows what it was like growing up and being a huge fan of George Strait. You know, he knows what that feels like, and he relates to them. You know, before he was Luke Bryan, and you know, he was always Luke Bryan. But before he was the, you know, the the artist Luke Bryan. Um, he feels like he's just like, just like them. Yeah. He relates to them in a way that you can't fake that at all. You know, you can't, you just, it's just impossible. So he connects with them when he does his meet and greets, he disarms everybody so quickly. Like, Hey man, how's it going? You know, how are you? You know, what do you do? Where are you from? And all of a sudden people are like, you're asking me about me? Like, and and he just, just such an amazing job. You know, watching bands like Metallica or Weird Al or Luke Bryan all engage with their fans in in such a genuine way because they appreciate their fans. that's awesome.
1: I read that in 2013, CID moved headquarters to Philly.
0: Mm -hmm. So we were in New York. Um, Obviously, starting a company in New York is way more expensive than starting a company in Philly. But, you know, there are more managers and agents that live in New York than live in Philly. So, you know, it afforded me some more opportunities at the time, certainly. So I grew the company there. There were a couple of people here in Philly. And then when we got from 2008 to 2013, um, we got to about 30 people. So I started looking for new office space. And it was just unsustainable to think about getting new office space in New York. It just wasn't going to happen. Couldn't afford it. So I started looking at cities, looked at Charleston, looked at New Orleans, looked at LA, looked at Denver and looked at Philly. Those were our choices. And narrowed it down, um, you know, with a couple of people that I worked with, narrowed it down to Philadelphia. Why did Philly win? Philly won because I thought it would be less of a culture shock to the people that I worked with, to our team, who I care deeply about, who I still care deeply about. You know, specifically Charleston's airport, it's really hard to get direct flights in and out of. New Orleans, I thought I would just lose a couple people to the night. You know, they would just like disappear (laughs) on Frenchman Street. (laughs) L.A. was too far And Denver was nothing like it is now. I didn't think it was ready for us. You know, I love Philly. I love it deeply. So I don't want to discount that. I love Philadelphia. But it also felt like retention of our team was going to be highest if we moved to Philadelphia because it was the closest to people's friends and family. It most resembled New York City, you know, any of the other cities. And if people wanted to go home, they can go home. Yeah. Because it's, you know, 70 minute train ride. Yeah.
1: Tell me about CID Presents.
0: So, um, you know, we were pitching a lot of our artists, you know, Fish and Luke Bryan specifically, that we could do these destination events, basically take all of the skills that we had to date, which was a enhanced concert experience, which was transportation and which was working with hotels and figuring out a great overnight solution for folks. So taking all of those skills and putting them together and miraculously, Luke was the first one to say yes. He took a risk, you know, and obviously in a post fire festival era, Mm. it's a risk, you know, for somebody like Luke Bryan. And, you know, I distinctly remember, you know, and obviously we dealt with his manager and his agent, but I distinctly remember, you know, Luke wanted to talk to me before we confirmed. And I had this, like, I had this whole accordion file of like detail, you know, maps and different art installations that we're thinking about doing and like budgets and like different scenarios and like marketing ideas and whatnot. And I roll my like dorky little accordion file into his dressing room. And he just looks at me. He goes, hey, man, you ever done anything like this before? I was like, nope. He was like, can you pull it off? I was like, yes, I can. I'm 100 percent sure I can. He's like, all right, let's do it. I was like, we're done. We're good. You need the accordion. Yeah, <laughs> He's like, we're done. We can do it. After that happens and is a success, you decide you want to do more of that, right? Yeah, way more. I mean, so another, you know purely serendipitous moment is my cousin got married at the Barcelo in 2005, I believe. And this was, you know, I was the tour manager of the Disco Biscuit slash getting out of that, going to the electric factory without really these big dreams at all. And I remember going to this hotel and seeing this like beautiful beach and being like, uh, be cool if fish played there. And like, I, I remember that thought, like I remember it. And then, you know, when we started looking at venues, that was the first place I went. I was like, guys, I think I got it. Like, I think I know, you know, and they wouldn't even take a meeting with me. I had to just like show up because I didn't really know. There was obviously a language barrier. There's a culture barrier. What are we trying to do? What are you talking about? Yeah. So I went there. I got a meeting. This guy named Thomas, who we ended up working with for five years. And I was like, no, no, no can you show me? I know where this is. I know where the spot is. Go show me this beach. And he's was like, oh, that's, you know, that's our annex beach. We use it for weddings. I was like, Exactly. So that's where we ended up doing our shows. And now come 2020, we've got five shows. Um, We work with The Dead, so Dead and Company, um, which is, you know, Guys from the Grateful Dead and John Mayer. We do one weekend with Luke Bryan that's called Crash My Playa. That's a country music festival. We do one weekend with Fish. We do one weekend with Dave Matthews. I would say a common misconception about me, especially because of the type of events that we throw, is that I'm an unabashed capitalist, Mm. whereas the reason I started this company is because I have such a deep love for live music and a deep love for the community that surrounds that. Mm. I do what I do so that hopefully people can get to experience that. And whether it's through a $50 shuttle pass to Coachella or whether it's, you know, someone spending $100,000 on a mansion that's next to the site at Coachella that also has artist passes and golf cart transportation or whatnot. You know, the fact that we can help people experience that and like feel that they're in the right place at the right time and they're with the right people and they're seeing the right music, I don't think there's any better feeling on earth. And if they can take that, if they can take that feeling and they can spread it, maybe they're nicer to their family or they're nicer to the people at work yeah. or they're, they're more engaged in their community. Like what, what could that feeling do to somebody? I think that that feeling is one of the more inspirational feelings in the world.
1: Last question, if you could get one message to every Philadelphian, be it a tweet, billboard, plane in the sky, one thing that every Philadelphian could receive
0: and ponder, what would you say? Stay here. We've seen so many great people come out of this community, come out of this town. And unfortunately, for one reason or another, a lot of them have left. You've got people like M. Night Shyamalan, who, you know, is here. You see him at almost every single Sixers game. Yeah. But... You know, a couple more, couple more folks staying here and, you know, and, and all the respect in the world to the people that have left here and they've left here for reasons. And especially like Will Smith or Kevin Hart mm-hmm. and, you know, Diplo constantly representing Philly, you know, constantly Diplo will be on stage in like India wearing an Iverson jersey. Yeah. You know, a lot of these people have such strong Philly roots, but, you know, I, I think something that will help is people staying. Yeah. But at the same time, for everybody that's here, let's support each other. Let's communicate. And this is something that we've been talking about a little bit. Is getting, you know, even folks that have been on the Philly Who podcast together about, you know, what could we do to make Philadelphia a better place for everybody.
1: If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating if you're on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was recorded in the Philly Who studio, powered by CIC, and was hosted and produced by me, with associate production by Angela Gervasi and Jackson Neal, editing and mixing by Max Graham, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Until next time.